every toothbrush that you and I and, and everyone else has ever used is just sitting here somewhere on this planet. Mm -hmm. The women um, in, you know, produce 70% of the world's food um, and actually own only 3% of the world's land. And roughly, you know, in 2023, it's roughly the same. And, you know, the percentage is slightly higher mm. when it is um, a female and a male co-founders of an enterprise, but still that number is like six or something percent. Um, last I checked. Hello and welcome to the Iconic Women podcast. Today's guest is a woman who not only feels passionately for the environment, but has dedicated her life's work towards making a change. In a time where Indian households are generating unprecedented amounts of waste, here's someone who has committed to keeping waste out of our landfills. An advocate for social equality, she is an author and the founder of the zero waste brand Bare Necessity, making sustainable personal care accessible using packaging that can easily be composted in our balcony garden. Join me today to discover how Seher Mansoor makes sustainability and entrepreneurship work hand in hand. Hi, Sahar, and welcome to the Iconic Women podcast. I am super excited to have you here. I'm super excited to talk to you. Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I have to start by asking you, there is so much noise in this space of sustainability and uh, claims to, you know, products being eco-friendly, things like that. How does one separate the noise from the real stuff? Um, I think now there's a lot of greenwashing, right? I think brands want to also kind of align themselves with what's cool and what's trending, which is sustainability right now. But I think consumers are actually really smart. And I think um, we as consumers can ask questions and actually just look more and ask for, you know, where were the products made? Um, you know, who made them? Um, how much did they get paid for it? Maybe that information might not be obviously publicly available. But uh, especially with clothing, the fashion revolution movement has done a really good job of kind of asking big brands these questions. Mm -hmm. But I think the more a brand kind of shares online, yeah. you automatically can have a little bit more trust and credibility about, you know, what's going on in the back end. Because they might tell you, um, this is this fabric, or as descriptive as, and how much ever detail with, with which they can share with you, I think is, uh, for me, a total trust indicator, whether or not they might not have these fancy certifications. Because also, all of these certifications come with a really expensive cost. Hmm. And uh, having done a lot of field work with you know, farmers in Karnataka, etc. I know when a farmer is genuinely producing great organic produce right. with lots of field work. So essentially, the more information a brand can share about their fabrics or how they're producing things, um, automatically you can kind of associate more trust with them. Um, having spent a lot of time in rural Karnataka working with, you know, f farmers, etc., I know that they are, you know, genuinely trying their best and producing organic produce, but they also can't kind of afford USD organic or these fancy certifications. So I think, right. um, you know, just especially in the Indian landscape or um, other developing economies where certifications aren't super accessible, I think it's important to just like ask brands information and also see how much they're being able to share with you. Uh, and I think that's a great way to kind of distinguish among the clutter. Yeah. Um, but having said that, you know, brands that do have the time, headspace, investment to go ahead for these certifications, that's also great because then again, you know that there are 
third parties that are actually validating all of the claims, looking at their supply chain, looking right. at how well they're treating their um, you know, teammates, et cetera. So, um, and just how they obviously fare on several environmental metrics. Um, so yeah, just ask as many questions as you can and as many answers as you get, right. um, you can kind of associate them with more, being more kind of trustworthy and mm -hmm. it truly being sustainable in some lens that you might have for yourself. Sure. And, and other than certifications, um, are there ways that, that we can know whether, you know, a brand is the claims that they're making are real and true or is it, is it a tall claim? Oh, gosh, I don't know. It depends on the scale and the stage um, of different companies. And um, I, I do think there is a huge issue around greenwashing. Mm. Um, you know, it is genuinely something that brands are doing as a marketing gimmick to just perceive to be more green than they actually truly are in order right. to just get more kind of revenue and et cetera. So it is genuinely a problem. And I think we will see a lot of regulations on a state national level as we progress. Um, the EU actually is like the regulators of the world and they've okay. actually set up a lot of regulations around things and I think slowly that is getting trickled to different parts of the world as well. So I think in the next few years we will see a lot of regulation as well around it. What is the most challenging part of running a sustainability-based business in India? Because if I'm not wrong, this whole space is quite nascent in India now, isn't it? Yeah. Gosh, how long do we have all day? <laughs> um, honestly, in terms of challenges, there are several. Um, yeah. I mean, trying to be a small business, trying to be against the tide with kind of what you're doing, how you're producing, um, the transparency, the storytelling around kind of your producers and where you're get, getting everything from. Um, and sometimes consumers might not understand, you know, price of a product or um, maybe in India we're really used to this culture of discounting and like what's a good bargain. Right. Um, and sometimes, you know, if you are paying for certain things, it all comes at a certain cost. Um, so how do you have a sustainable business that really advocates for environmental sustainability, but also how does that translate to financial sustainability when maybe the audience isn't fully ready for it. Right. Um, but I will say that there is, you know, this amazing emerging um, consumer base, uh, millennials and others who are really looking to align their consumer choices with their values. Right. And, you know, they are really smarter than um, consumers right now are way smarter than, you know, they used to be, I would say, 15 years ago and right. can also distinguish from the clutter and um, kind of are genuinely looking to align with their, their, their values with their consumer choices. And I think that right. is the most positive trend I've seen and that will only make this ecosystem of sustainable brands grow even more. Go, yeah. and, and I think we've already seen a mushrooming of more and more sustainable brands. So it's only a matter of a few years when it's going to be super accessible and yeah. it's an economies of problem, economies of scale problem and solution. So as more people are creating more demand for sustainable products, more producers are going to make those sustainable products. Sure. And the prices are going to go down because, you know, we're obviously uh, demanding at that scale. And whenever we're producing things at that scale, it'll also kind of have those trickle down effects um, to everyone. Yeah. So I think we're just going to see a lot of positive trends in this landscape. But as things stand now, today, mm -hmm. um, is... is Price versus, you know, kind of holding on to your values, is that a challenge that, that you have personally? Yeah, I think sometimes it definitely is. But I think also sometimes you just have to articulate, um, you know, why things are a certain way, why things are priced a certain way. Um, you know, whether it is we get our cocoa butter from Orville, it's a woman-based enterprise that makes single-origin chocolate. 
Right. A byproduct of them, you know, making chocolate is this cocoa butter that is then used in eight different of our products. So as much as you can also share um, with your consumers, um, I think will help just spread awareness and educate consumers as well. And this happened to me even when I started, you know, when I was talking about sustainability, we were the first to sell bamboo toothbrushes in India. And I realized very early that I had to actually create a demand for the products. Yeah. Because I had to create awareness for awareness why do you it. even need a bamboo toothbrush in the first place? And, and why do you need a bamboo yeah. toothbrush? Yeah, <laughs> so plastic toothbrushes, yeah. um, you know, that are more than 5 billion on this planet. Right. And every toothbrush that you and I and, and everyone else has ever used is just sitting here somewhere on this planet. And um, it's largely because it's made out of plastic. Yeah. And plastic takes 700 odd years to start kind of disintegrating in the first place. Yeah. And it never fully does. Um, it just kind of break down, breaks down into smaller and smaller pieces of microplastics and then lands up in the food chain and you know the water um, that we're then trying to kind of grow our food in, et cetera. And every week we're all consuming like a credit card size worth of microplastics. Um, and microplastics is something By that you- Consuming you mean ingesting? We're literally ingesting it. Uh -huh. um, and you know, researchers found microplastics in breast milk, in blood, in, um, in our gut, in human poo so it is literally we are breathing it we are consuming it um, and that also is causing a lot of health impacts um, as well underlying everything that you do today right um, I feel there's a strong worldview where you have a, a point of view on social equality and on justice um, what do these mean to you at a at a personal level at a at a soul level I think honestly, all of us are responsible to be part of the solution to make this world more equitable, more just, uh, more sustainable, and the best version of it that it can possibly be. Um, and I think, you know, especially around waste, there is a huge social justice issue underlining all of it. Um, you know, where are incinerators located? Where are landfills located? Um, they're often in low-income neighborhoods. And that could be in, you know, in India, but could also yeah. be translate that to America. It's in a low Latino, low income Latino neighborhood or African American neighborhood. Um, and I think even a lot of the times, um, waste is actually getting shipped to lots of developing countries. Because again, I don't know what we're signaling, but someone else's land, water, it's universe. More precious than someone else. Exactly. And I think that is so problematic. Um, so I think working in the waste space uh, you know, really actually understanding it from a very ground up perspective. I spent some time actually following waste warriors or waste pickers all around Bangalore City, kind of noticing the conditions in which they were segregating our waste, the lack of infrastructure systems around it, um, hearing stories about um, people losing their thumbs because when they were segregating, there was actually a broken glass, you know, all of that stuff. And I honestly got to just put aside my very <laughs> elitist academic kind of Cambridge environmentalist perspective. Yeah and just really humanize our waste problem from a very, very ground up perspective. And I think, you know, I think it was those conversations that really humanized it. And for me, I really understood that there is an underlying social justice issue about how we consume and we ought to be part of the solution. There's kind of no other way. Um, so I think, yeah, that's a huge element, but I think also just, you know, social justice in terms of um, equality, gender equality, those were kind of themes that I think um, shaped me in very subconscious ways growing up. Mm -hmm. And um, 
you know, trying to incorporate some versions of those solutions in what we're building, even at bare necessities. And that's, you know, by virtue of a woman-run production team that we have that make, ship, and package all of your amazing So this is an all-women team. Yeah. <laughs> amazing. Um, so those are, you know, just few small solutions that I know how I can be part of this big picture. But um, I think, yeah, underlying lots of kind of larger social justice and inequality issues. You call them waste warriors, right? Um, what was that first risk that you had with them? Like you said, you had come back from Cambridge and, and you know, your, your other kind of formal education. Um, what made you start working with, with waste specifically and with waste pickers, of course, in particular? Yeah. Um, so when I moved back to Bangalore, I actually worked in the solar energy and access space. And um, I was trying and experimenting about, you know, living a low waste lifestyle for myself. And I think my coworkers had kind of noticed that around me. Um, and then when an opportunity arose to work with this waste picker community for a solar lighting intervention, um, they knew they had to put me on the project. Okay. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I was actually really proud at that time when I was looking at new emerging Indian brands. Um, and they were kind of championing millets and, you know, you know, sustainable produce and things like that. And I was like, oh, there's something happening in this Indian startup ecosystem and things like that. Um, and then on the other side, I was noticing kind of these mountains and mountains of trash um, that we're all kind of producing. And I was like, you know, every solution is also contributing to that same problem. Mm -hmm. um, so I think it was one of those, you know, aha moments where I was like, gosh, we cannot be consuming at this unprecedented rate. Yeah. Um, if we want to give some resemblance of a nice planet, um, a livable, happy planet that we had the, you know, the privilege and the honor of experiencing, uh, we have to change something. And kind of, that was kind of the aha moment for me. And, and what was it like to work with uh, what you call waste warriors uh, on a personal level, on a human level, what, what did you observe? What did you find? What were some of your most memorable interactions? Um, so I honestly worked with mostly the men in the community and they yeah. did a lot of the cycling, going, collecting. And the women in the community largely did the sorting okay. um, and, you know, bailing and basically putting all of the dry plastics on one side, all of the cardboard on one side, dry coconut on one side, things like that. So they were mostly the segregators on site but that, because that also gave them the flexibility of cooking on the side, the kids are there you know, all of that. Um, and the men would do the work of um, helping on their cycle, making retrofits with a little bit of, um, you know, like a box that's associated with the cycle that they can then um, transport all of the trash to, yeah. etc. And I would notice how early everyone woke up. So actually, um, typical days start hopping on your bike at 5 a.m. And I would literally follow them until 9. And then I, you know, obviously had the luxury of hopping into my car and then going, yeah. showering and being back at work. But um, I was just, you know, thinking about, gosh, how long are they possibly doing this for? And uh, even sometimes when I'm, you know, just going commuting from place to place and I see someone who's lugging around their trash and I'm like, I wonder if his day started, you know, at 5 a.m. and if he's still yeah. going at 10 p.m. or whatnot. Yeah. Um, and, but another thing that no I noticed about the community is uh, that they were very proud and they were so clean. They had this mm. routine as soon as they came back, you know, about genuinely having this ritualistic cleansing routine. Yeah. And then um, even the way they kept their homes, even though this was like super informal tarp homes. Right. Um, they had so much pride and, um, you know, there was little rangoli outside um, and there was, you know, an attire that you wore um, that when you went waste picking and then there was 
uh, wash and cleansing and then you kind of enter home yeah. with kind of um, so it was actually lots of things that I noticed you know just little things of on their cycle they had a little napkin so every time they waste pick and, and they hop back on the cycle they wipe their hands and yeah. so I really noticed that um, you might not associate them with being so clean but they had so much pride and they were genuinely had like um, you know like lots of cleansing routines, part of their day yeah. um, as well. But I got to also know them by like how many kids they had, how many months, um, you know, in a year do they go back home. Um, and yeah, lots of kind of other things that just made me humanize um, yeah. the community and the waste problem. What does a day look like in, in the life of their children? Typically. Yeah, so actually what we were trying to do was to set up a kind of school there. Uh, and there was someone who was interested actually. And um, it was someone who essentially they give all the waste to. Um, and he then gives it to the next aggregator. But he was kind of in exchange for his services, gives you protection, has a water tanker come into the, pro into the land so you have access to water. So he would take care of other needs of the community. Um, and he had an interest in kind of having someone come over and teach. Um, and there are kids of so many ages that where do you start? Like, you know, mm -hmm. even if you were to have one session, maybe it would cater to a certain age group and not be relevant for other age groups. So I think there were a few struggles around um, having a formal education system um, mm -hmm. around for the kids. Uh, but this community was kind of in, in the middle of nowhere near the Bangalore International Airport. Okay. Um, but I know some communities who are closer to local schools have integrated their kids in the local um, school where, um, you know, whether it's Kannada medium and English and Hindi, like, yeah. you know, they all just kind of figure and then you learn from an early age. Yes, so a lot of their kids were also speaking Kannada and everything, right, right. even though the, the, they, maybe their parents may, may not even speak it. Yeah. Um, so that was also kind of interesting to know. You know, Ruth Ginsburg uh, once said that, you know, so often in life, things that you regard to be an impediment actually end up being great fortune. And I'm paraphrasing a little yeah. bit. Uh, but but um, would you say that something like that has ever happened to you? Would you say that that applies to you in any way? Um, yeah, for sure. I think, first of all, Ruth Ginsburg is amazing and is super, super badass. I think she's paved the way for she gender is. equality in so many ways. Um, and, you know, so many things that we just take for granted is something that she has done and from the 70s really been part of the movement. Um, I think, you know, um, being a co-founder of the uh, women's wing at the ACLU, being the second woman, I think, in her class, at least at Harvard Law, um, she did not take her position in any setting for granted. Um, and of course, in her legal career, took on a lot of cases around gender to break down gender biases in the workplace, for reproductive rights, um, for, um, you know, uh, rights associated with maternal care and paternal care as well. Right. Um, so it was, I think it's just phenomenal everything that she has done. Um, and I think, yeah, I mean, that quote, um, uh, definitely, I think something that has shaped me in a, in a lot of ways um, is kind of, um, you know, losing my dad at a very early age. And um, it was it was very hard. It was it was very um, it was very dramatic. It was kind of life changed overnight. It was it was it was actually a very it was very hard because it was you know my sister's birthday and we all went out to dinner and it was just a family Sunday dinner and um, on our way we decided to get ice cream and while we were attempting to cross the road we had a speeding car kind of come into us and kind of change our lives forever um, and. You know, that night has kind of shaped my way in so many ways. Um, and it was very quickly we realized that 
um, you know, was us against the world in terms of navigating so many things um, because the world as it is structured is very male dominant and also favors certain things. Even just the smallest thing in India where your default um, land rights of owning a property or apartment, etc., is just a like dual, is, is a single ownership versus most, most parts of Europe, it's a dual ownership. So you immediately write two names. Mm -hmm. So women um, in, you know, produce 70% of the world's food um, and actually own only 3% of the world's land. And, you know, all of this um, is backed by data, but it just made us realize from a very early age that, yeah. you know, um, you got to just work hard, hustle, and kind of navigate all of your next steps. So I think, um, yeah, I think it shaped me in lots of ways. It, you know, shaped my perspective about um, how I want to create a more inclusive space. Right. Um, what is the space that women occupy? Whether it's a startup ecosystem or the fundraising ecosystem, what are these numbers? How come it, you know, um, these numbers haven't changed dramatically. I remember going to the library and reading a book when I was in college, and it said uh, roughly more institutional funding um, towards women female founders goes is 2% globally. And that was a 2000 stat. And roughly, you know, in 2023, it's roughly the same. And, you know, the percentage is slightly higher mm. when it is um, a female and a male co-founders of an enterprise. But still that number is like 6 or something percent. Um, last I checked. So it is, so it's really interesting how yeah. um, so much of the way um, the economies and life is structured, um, definitely kind of, we have a long way to go, um, even though, you know, people like Ruth Ginsburg have done such phenomenal work and I'm really cognizant of that. But I think it also kind of constantly highlights the amount of work that is left to be done. Absolutely. And that's us saying this with our privilege, sitting here and you know having a chat. But just imagine in kind of uh, rural India, in or the kind of community we were just talking exactly, about. Exactly, like what that means, and um, and just just not having access to so many things that we kind of now take for granted. Um, so yeah, I, I think it just shaped my worldview in a lot of ways. Yeah, uh, and trying to kind of see how I can best be part of that solution or understand that or have conversations around it um, was something that was really important. So did you uh, did you grow up in a family of strong women? Oh yeah, for sure. I have two older sisters. Um, my mom I went to all girls high school, and I had a, a super cute girl cat. <laughs> um, so, but no, it's definitely kind of always had uh, strong female role models all around me. Uh, my sister had like a shoe company while she was in college. Um, you know, very entrepreneurial, and I think I got to kind of watch these amazing examples when I was growing up, which was super super incredible. Um, you know, there's this book that I used to read to my kid when he was growing up uh, called The Lorax by Dr. Seuss. Um, and, you know, sort of right at the end, there is this line that says, which, which I can never forget, which says, unless someone like you cares a whole awful lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. Um, do you think that, you know, Generation Alpha, so, you know, the, the population that's kids today, are they more conscious of the environment? Are they more conscious of social justice than, than say, like my generation or a couple of generations before us? Do you think that there's a change? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I do think there is some kind of level of cognizance and intuition, yeah. which has been like really beautiful. Um, my sister has an eight-year-old and a four-year-old. Um, and just interacting and having those conversations, um, when, you know, when she visited India and she noticed so many people like just around the streets begging and things like that, she asked such sweet, intelligent and empathetic questions. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that just gave me a lot of faith about how 
Um, this generation is growing, and I think they just have this really huge EQ, uh, which only means they're going to help build a more equitable, just, um, and sustainable world. I hope so, yeah. So who faces the biggest impact when it comes to climate change and global warming? Are certain groups more vulnerable than others? Yeah, definitely. Um, coastal communities, island nations, um, by virtue of obviously the sea level rise, which means obviously, you know, loss of land, loss of livelihood, um, and just loss all around, because yeah. obviously in those economies you can't produce, you can't do anything. Um, so I think that's a huge one. Uh, women and marginalized communities, um, you know, people are already on the bottom of the pyramid, um, obviously would not have any extra income just sitting around to protect themselves from like floods and all of these dramatic weather conditions mm. and things that are changing. Um, farmers, obviously the, you know, agrarian cycles because of all of their um, kind of cycles associated with, you know, harvesting, etc., have been drastically impacted because of also the rain patterns being completely uh, massively impacted and just all of the things around climate change. So uh, I think they are facing a huge kind of loss of livelihood because of all of the, you know, uh, unpredictabilities associated with um, the weather patterns, etc. Um, so I think essentially everyone who's kind of at the bottom of the pyramid um, and everyone who's already kind of facing enough struggle is only going to be impacted even more. And yeah. kind of the impacts of climate change is going to just exacerbate their condition, uh, unfortunately. So really important for us to build more climate resilient cities, uh, be more cognizant of how we can be more inclusive. Um, what does that mean from a low income housing perspective? What does that mean from how we build, how do we use more natural material while we build, um, how are we also creating some amount of social equity um, so we can build more people up, how are we also thinking about our own actions from a day-to-day -day level, how right. we kind of, you know, curbing our emissions from a personal level, but also kind of city, state, national level to just hopefully all be part of the solution to kind of combat climate change. While this might be intuitive, I still want to ask you this because I'm sure that you'll have um, very specific insights, you know. So you said women and marginalized communities um, face more of a fallout. Uh, can you say a little bit more about that? Yeah, for Why sure. Why specifically? How? How does it impact their lives? You yeah, know? for sure. If you look at most rural communities, who is in charge of collecting fuel and water for the household? Women. It's the girls. It's the yeah. women. Um, who is not in school because they're too busy walking, collecting, um, you know, water, but also kind of uh, sticks, etc., um, to just keep up with the energy needs and the kind of water needs and then their of their household. Um, so again, what does that mean? There's no, there's no water. There's water shortage. Uh, climate change has kind of, you know, impacted. Um, if, like lots of things, but just say that in this particular re region, there is drought going on. Now the women have to now walk even more to try and find some forms of access of water to bring it back to their home, to right. kind of support their home. Um, so it's, it's only impacting um, <laughs> women in a disproportionate way. Yeah. Marginalized communities, um, you know, whether you are a tribal community and you are a migratory community, um, you might be a nomadic community and your livelihood might depend on um, whether you're a shepherd community. So many things depend upon where is the green space and how, you know, where are you, what is your usual route, etc. And how far do you have to how, go to? Exactly. And uh, so many things are being, are 
it's completely changing that you have no predictability. It's not like you have insurance sitting here somewhere that you can say, oh, you know what, um, I can't go to the um, you know, northeastern part uh, of my route that I usually go, so I, and I'm going to be able to navigate and I'm going to go into this part because this has more greenery at, at this time. We don't even have that kind of access to information and things like that. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, unfortunately, um, you know, communities, especially the tribal and nomadic community, don't even have a lot of land rights. They don't have ID cards, um, completely um, excluded from the legal system, except for the 600 tribes that I mentioned. Um, so how do we kind of work with these communities to help build more resilience, uh, especially when they're kind of being impacted by climate change, is going to be one of the biggest challenges of our lifetime. So what inspired you to start Bare Necessities? Was it an incident? Was it part of a journey? What was that turning point? Yeah, for sure. I think I've been really excited about sustainability for a long time. But I think it was working with base pickers. And I noticed kind of, you know, how we need to create more sustainable products that are destined not to land up in the oceans or landfills. Um, and that's when I personally started to live a more low waste lifestyle. And then while I was living, you know, trying or experimenting, um, I realized that maybe there are others who are also looking to consume more mindfully. And that's how Bare Necessities was born. And we try and make necessities and daily products that you might need from the minute you wake up to the minute you sleep um, that are all packaged in an earth-friendly manner, um, that celebrate lots of natural ingredients, lots of Indian ingredients, um, and basically have a kinder impact on our planet. Is everything compostable except, of course, the glass jars, which can be reused? So, so for instance, I've bought and used and loved your soaps and so many <laughs> yeah. other products. If I have just a balcony with a few pots, um, can I can I compost the packaging just right there? Yeah, for sure. Um, so all of our packaging is basically recyclable, reusable, or fully compostable. Um, so, for example, if you had a cardboard box that everything got shipped to you, and you'll have to break it down into small pieces, or you know, shred it or make it into small pieces, and you can use it as a brown layer in your kamba or in your compost that you uh -huh. might have okay. um, at home. Um, and you know, because the richness of the all of the wet matter and the combination with the brown matter obviously helps it kind of go back to the earth and kind of make this amazing rich compost and black gold in three weeks or four weeks or uh, depending on if you have a little neem or microbes to expedite that. Um, and of course, the glass jars you can use, whether you want to use it for jam jars or yeah. um, you know pencil stands or whatever. Um, and equally, if you don't have that much room or you don't have a compost, you can also just segregate all of your dry waste um, and you can give it in, uh, suppose you live. Um, so in Bangalore, actually, the BBMP website locates all of the wards um, and you can go and give your dry waste there. But also now most mm. apartments also collect yeah. um, your, your dry waste. So it's super accessible to find um, a Radhiwala or a BBMP center um, that is a waste segregation center or even just in your apartment complex, et cetera, um, that will take kind of your dry waste. And there are also some super innovative products you have, um, such as detergents, but without the water components. So they're just in the powder form, right? Can you talk a little bit more about that? Why, why did you think of that? And what difference does it make in the long run? Yeah, for sure. Um, so most detergents that you might think of, like that we use to launder our clothes, they typically come in these like bulky one kg odd containers, right? And um, essentially, this is the idea to make the exact opposite. So we're just giving you a super small, um, compact sachet that has only the 10% of the active ingredients that you truly need. Uh, so we're saying, you know, why are we paying to ship water across the country when we can just give you that 10% active uh, ingredient? So um, yeah. you just add water, uh, and it's uh, super accessible. Um, it's also a really fun DIY to do with like kids. Um, but you know, from a solution-oriented approach, we're saying 
hey, we're lighting your carbon footprint because you're not, um, logistic costs are reduced and, you know, the carbon emissions in, in, in transporting items that are heavy and bulky yeah. versus something that is so compact. So basically it also reduces your carbon dioxide emissions by 80 to 90%. Um, so we're just trying to be innovative and plug and play wherever we can, solutions that can be possibly part of the solution, um, you know, around sustainability and climate change. Um, so yeah, that's one of our solutions. You know, when you say it, it just makes so much sense that I am wondering, A, of course, why did I not, never think of this? Uh, but B, and much more importantly, why do we as a society even have products like this that are, you know, sort of uh, a large component is water and it's not necessary. It, it costs that much in terms of transportation. It weighs that much more, et cetera. Why, why, is, that even, why is that even a thing? Yeah. Um, honestly, if you look at the history of plastics, uh, it's very interesting. Um, so actually, you know, in World War, especially World War II, uh, the companies came up with plastic and it was used to, um, you know, help soldiers protect their food, save their food, increase the shelf life of their food, especially while they were um, obviously posted all across the world amidst the world wars. And then post that, the companies were like, oh, okay, now what? What are we going to use plastic for? And then came this emergence of uh, kind of the 50s and women then going bu buying store pot stuff, especially in America. Um, you know, mm -hmm. all of the, a lot of the iconic ads um, are around that. And it was interesting because it allowed women to maybe start entering the workforce because now you have a lot of packaged food available. Right. So that was also very interesting. And, and that's a great advantage that plastic has given women, actually. Um, right. And then what happened was we didn't understand the negative impact. Yeah. And us humans, we don't understand how to do things in moderation. We know we always have to overdo yeah. things, whether that's, you know, access to technology and swiping on Instagram to consuming. And plastic just started to invade our economies and lifestyle at this insanely unprecedented rate. And now everything that we know in 2023, after all of the research, etc., um, we're trying to kind of undo it. But we've also gone so far with this web of convenience, and also being marketed things in a certain way with a certain rhetoric. And some could be fear-based, some could be convenience-based, some we've just gotten used to and habit-based. Uh, so to unlearn that, it's going to take a lot of emerging sustainable brands to kind of push the needle on this and maybe help us go back to our roots. If you think about maybe what did your parents, like grandparents use to wash dishes? Um, you know, they use like a coconut scrubby. Yes, exactly. They use like an ash. And, yeah. Exactly. And those were all powdered formats. They might use Ritha that was all uh, powdered. Um, and, you know, so it was, it was the format that was most non-polluting to the groundwater that was going down in your tap. And chances are maybe a few generations earlier, they were also producing food in the same vicinity, right? And like um, in my grandma's house, till now, like uh, there is, if you need tomatoes, if you need curry pata, anything, you literally, yeah. first thing is you go to the garden and just grab it from there. Um, so I think it just, the way we've mass consumed, combination of urbanization, et cetera, has just led us in this mess that we currently are. Um, so it'll just need a lot of awareness um, and lots of people asking good questions uh, to help push the needle.
So are you hopeful that that we will be able, you know, to sort of take a few steps back and and undo some of this damage that we've done? Yeah, definitely, for sure. Why is that though? I'm just wondering. So I think just the amount of innovation that's going on in the space, the amount of amazing environmental entrepreneurs doing stuff. Um, if you look at energy storage, um, it is just becoming smarter and sleeker and, you know, electric vehicles. Everything is being leapfrogged, you know, and it's really mm -hmm. interesting, right? Um, and a simple example that everyone can relate to is um, we had us, our kind of digital, uh, sorry, our, um, our landlines, right? And then in India, we just kind of leapfrogged to the digital revolution where everyone then had f mobile phones, right? right? And the same thing is kind of happening um, in the EV space, right? Um, we are leapfrogging in terms of making electric vehicles more accessible. Um, from a price point as well, there's lots of innovation happening on it. Um, the Tata EV is actually at a very, very accessible price point. Mm -hmm. um, and um, of course, not to maybe the Aam Aadmi, but that only means it's only going to get better. Um, so I think just the amount of amazing entrepreneurs, people, uh, researchers, you know, uh, botanical illustrators, everyone just being part of the ecosystem and doing such amazing work um, keeps me super optimistic that we can kind of reverse uh, the impacts of climate change that we're currently facing. If we just compost all of our food waste, we're helping save 60% of our waste from ever entering the landfills. Wow. So, you know, there are so many ways in which we can actually uh, reverse engineer and, um, yeah, basically reverse climate change. Speaking of pricing, uh, because you brought that up, you know, with EVs and things, when it comes to your brand, um, you know, I, I'm sure that... that um, there are struggles in terms of keeping the price accessible because I know that that social justice means something to you, that yeah. your product should be accessible to a wider audience means something to you. Um, so when it comes to kind of keeping your prices lower versus profits versus a value system, then what, what wins and, and how? Yeah, um, I'm definitely going to say that I haven't mastered it all. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm still a seeker, I'm still learning. Um, but I think it is... Um, interesting. We've done some several experiments, and I don't know if it's the right thing or wrong thing. Um, but you know, whenever we've hit some versions of scale, we've actually reduced the prices mm -hmm. um, to make it more yeah. accessible to consumers. Yeah. And um, that's a very non-traditional move. We try to take that benefit to our consumers to see, hey, will that mean that more people can then start being part of the solution by virtue of you know their daily necessities and how they might consume? There are lots of things that are actually happening in the world that actually really impacts pricing. Um, you know, things like war, things like, um, you know, inflations and things like that, access to f um, fuel prices, yeah. um, all of that will then also, that impacts your entire supply chain. Because then it means that everything is get, becoming more expensive, right? Um, so, yeah, I think, you know, we're trying <laughs> our, our best. Um, and only time will tell if we're doing the right things too. Um, but for now, what does your accountant say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we can always do better. <laughs> and I think, uh, I think the environmental activist in me sometimes, you know, wants to just uh, be a big, you know, big kumbaya and just make it all super accessible. But yeah. um, it's great that I have teammates who keep me accountable and who actually have all of the skills that I don't have. <laughs> um, mm. So I think it, it kind of keeps us all grounded. How is it working with your husband as a partner? <laughs> uh, depends on the day that you ask me. <laughs> okay. Well, generally. Um, overall, it's actually really nice um, because we actually met first through work. So we had a nice long-standing work relationship okay. before kind of... He's an environmentalist as well. Yeah. So um, Michal also cares about sustainability and, um, you know, joined the Bear team in 2019. So we have this rule, which is um, if 
one person asks and says, hey, can I talk about work? And the other person says, no, it's a no. Um, and, you know, because it could be like, you know, a cute date night, and then you're like, oh my God, I have this amazing, brilliant idea. Too bad, like, you just have to <laughs> remember Fuck that it. for a later time. Um, so I think that kind of helps, at least for me, bring some more balance into my life. Um, and another thing is just have separate areas. Like, Mehul is the last call on all things marketing, mm -hmm. and I am the last call on all things product and impact. So we're just kind of having also a very clear distinction, I think also really helps. <laughs> yeah, in terms of your role. Yeah. Um, but, but in terms of the perspective that he brings into the brand, I'm sure that everybody is the richer for it, right? Absolutely, absolutely. There's so much, I'm so grateful that we have an amazing team and everyone actually brings their perspective. And I think, you know, it's more brains just thinking about accessibility and sustainability and low waste living, which is a huge benefit. <laughs> Um, you know, no one's perfect, and I know that in spite of how hard we try, <laughs> uh, there are always areas that can get a little better. So, and, and for someone like you, are there, you know, little parts of your life that, that make you feel terrible that are not as sustainable as they could be? Yeah, definitely. Um, actually, when I first started on my low waste journey, I was very militant. Like, my mom would call me, like, you know, the plastic Nazi. I was, like, super, super, <laughs> like, I'm only going to buy groceries from this one shop, Buffalo Back Collective, on my way back because everything is low waste, is, like, package-free, etc. And then, you know, honestly, the pandemic happened, and it was impossible for you to be, um, you know, go to all of your local vendors and do all of the things that you used to do. And it just um, made me realize that sustainability is people, planet, profit. And... And maybe at different times and stages of your life, some motivation might be a little stronger at that time. And maybe for me at that time, people were a little bit, that aspect of sustainability just hit to my heart more yeah. than maybe some of the other more militant parts because of everything that was happening you know, around us in the pandemic. And you know, I, I'd also made some dramatic life changes. Like I used to wear contact lenses. And then I, I said, you know what, I'm going to do the math and this is, the true cost wow. of this and I got a Lasix okay. <laughs> you know so yeah. trying to do big and small things to just say like okay how can I best live my values um, and what is possible and what's not possible and acknowledging the what is not possible just has made me so free. I, I feel like you know when you're saying what you're saying there is there is so much um, sort of you feel so strongly about um, all of the issues that you work with on a regular basis but at the same time there is acceptance of how we can end up living our lives and, and what is okay for a family or what is okay on a more day-to-day -day level. How did that acceptance come about? You did mention COVID, but was there anything else? Um, I think, you know, everything that we do as a society, we try and put ourselves in boxes, like whether it is a small, medium, large, whether it is, you know, um, this religion or that. Social constructs work in a way that we like boxes, but actually, things are actually more gray. They're not so black and white. And actually, in my uh, late 20s, early 30s, um, I'm just valuing all of these things more and uh, <laughs> realizing that, um, you know, what, what really makes life, you know, colorful and meaningful to me and what gives you those nice feelings on the inside. And, um, and I think creating more boundaries and more labels sometimes actually does a more disservice. And keeping it more free-flowing actually creates more collaboration, creates more opportunity to um, humanize the other. Um, and I, I just like that approach more. What are some of these labels that you felt were attributed to you um, a little too much or unfairly or 
and and in what ways have you kind of let go of some of them yeah i think uh, a part of my identity which is the muslim woman identity has kind of got a new definition um you know with like recent life events which is i just got married to mehul um who is a hindu man and uh, it was really important for me to use our marriage as this great social experiment <laughs> but also as like an invitation to people to dehumanize the other which you know um you know if our wedding celebration was kind of a good example of that um we asked our parents what were things that matter to them or things that they'd like to incorporate but we largely kind of wrote our own ceremony and made like a very secular and we just put everything that we thought was fun um it just made it our own version Together of our ceremony you designed it what are some <laughs> of the simple things that we can all do in our daily lives to reduce our footprint Yeah um segregate your waste so your wet waste and your dry waste try and compost your wet waste if you can um if not see if you can give it to um kind of in your apartment complexes they're segregating etc um and then carry your own reusables so that could be a water bottle could be your mug it could be um your stainless steel straw for you know nadal pani um carry some rags and um carry some towels i mean <laughs> carry some towels if you can yeah. so you're not constantly using paper towels etc um and just being more mindful of your of your consumption so asking yourself if you really need it um before you purchase something being part of the thrifting solution and kind of the repair economy so yeah. can you fix something can you give the local cobbler anna uh, you know a little bit of livelihood while what you're fixing your shoes bags etc um So yeah, I think just being mindful of our footprint and how much we actually truly need, and uh, versus what is a shiny, quick kind of impulsive purchase, etc. Yeah, yeah. That that voice in your head that drives you to do what you do every day. What is that voice saying? Do your bit to be part of the solution, and it could be in a big way, small way, but whatever you can try and be a part of the solution. Amazing, and I I find you so optimistic. I mean, the fact that you said that this can be reversed. So which woman has been your greatest inspiration? Um I think it'll have to be Ruth Ginsburg. Okay. <laughs> I think Ruth Ginsburg is just super badass. Um I think she was an inspiration to everyone in the entire world. Uh I think she used her dissent statements that were often very bold um you know to just educate her fellow jurists uh, about her perspective um and you know there was no being apologetic or anything she was just so herself authentically herself um you know very very liberal uh, very clear about what equity means what justice means what the intersectionality of all of that means um and i think she's just super cool because you know even though um she was super kind of democratic in her leanings and opinions she had friends who were republican she would frequent the opera with them and yet kind of rejecting the the labels you know like like Absolutely. what what i can see that you're doing so <laughs> Trying. I, I, i can see how that inspiration is translating into into your life and you know what what you are too kind <laughs> <laughs> um so um are you ready to be dressed up as Ruth Ginsburg? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I was so happy when Seher said she wanted to reenact Ruth Ginsburg because I thought it would be a challenging look to achieve um and yet fun and interesting. One of the first thoughts I had is that I don't want to recreate a a, a cloak. Instead, I just wanted to drape a black fabric so that it flows in a similar way and kind of gives us a similar silhouette. We put all of this together on Seher and it's it it was such a beautiful contrast to how she normally dresses
So I actually really loved doing this look and putting this together. I have to thank you, Sahar, for being on our podcast and for having this really open conversation with me and really enlightening also. And, you know, I'm sort of going away with a, a few sort of action points already. And you know, <laughs> really, thank you so much. It's been amazing. No, thank you so much for having me. It was a blast talking to you. Thanks.